You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Good morning, everyone. We're uh, continuing a, uh, a journey through some of uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel's writings about prayer, uh, a great collection of essays called Man's Quest for God. Um, this is a, um, uh, sort of the middle of the, of, of the book. Um, interesting enough, th- th- this essay that we're going to look at today and the ones we've been looking at over the past couple of weeks um, um, is actually uh, in some... Uh, in some editions of Heschel's work, is considered a, a one long essay. Um, if you look at uh, the, this collection of great essays called Moral Grandeur and Spiritual Audacity, um, which, by the way, is like the greatest title of a book ever. Um, and uh, uh, it comes from, a, if you go to the Jewish Museum, actually, downtown, you'll see um, the, the actual telegram that uh, Heschel sent to uh, uh, President Kennedy um, uh, about um, about the civil rights movement, saying you know some, something to the effect of um, uh, this moment calls for for great moral grandeur and spiritual audacity. Um, so that's where the title of that book came from. Anyway, so this this uh, essay is a, a one long essay in in that work. Um, but here it's broken up into into pieces, which is a little bit helpful for us. But the uh, but the idea that's been introduced in the past couple of weeks is essentially that uh, um, uh, that 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 synagogues um, that uh, the modern American synagogue when Heschel was talking in the 1950s. Um, um, but I think that there are elements of what he's saying that that, that are very applicable today as well. Um, maybe even more so, some would argue. Um, but he's saying that the modern American synagogue is uh, is is suffocating. Um, is a is a is a shell um, that uh, um, that has uh, sort of uh, banished God, emotion, spirituality from uh, from from the act of prayer. Uh, the the gathering of a synagogue is uh, primarily social. The reading of the prayer book is uh, primarily perfunctory. Um, uh, it's uh, it's tranquil. It's uh, it's uh, sterile. Um, it's it's like reading a newspaper out loud. Um, so that's what he describes as the problem. And we've discussed uh, um, you know, both the the problem that he uh, that that he raises or he, he claims, um, and uh, and uh, some have uh, have have noted uh, his his lack of suggestions of solutions, uh, at least not yet. Um, but he also, I think, in in this next piece that we're going to look at called the doctrine of agnosticism, he's uh, trying to, I think, get to the to the root of uh, of the problem in a way, right? So he's describing the landscape in the previous couple essays, but in in uh, uh, the doctrine of agnosticism, I think he's really trying to um, articulate in the, in the ones that sort of follow. Um, he's he's going to try to, I think, articulate um, how things got to be where they are, um, and uh, and. Um, and, and what, what might be done about it. Okay, so this is what he says. The doctrine of agnosticism. Um, agnosticism, um, most of you are familiar with the term, but just to, just to, be, just to be clear, generally it means, um, um, it's from the, 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 the prefix a, meaning without, and uh, um, gnosis, gnosis, right, which is... Um, uh, a form of, uh, of of religious practice. Uh, um, it's interesting because uh, Gnosticism is uh, um, is about um, uh, the, the the division of uh, good and evil um, in in the world. 
um, uh, but uh, for various reasons that I'm not even sure of, um, has uh, has come in this term to be a, a, a stand-in for uh, for you know uh, religious belief, belief in God. So um, so agnosticism is um, is without uh, a with, without a, without a conviction of belief, right? So uh, so anyway, someone who is not sure whether or not there's a God, um, not an atheist, but someone who's not sure, someone who's, who who hasn't been convinced. Um, doubt, doubt is how I've often heard it. Doubt, about. right? A doubter. Um, which, by the way, I I would argue is a uh, um, a central feature of a life of faith, um, and I think that all all believers. Um, in some ways are, and in some ways ought to be um, agnostic, so that's maybe another conversation. Okay. The doctrine of agnosticism claims that prayer is rooted in superstition. It's one of humanity's greatest mistakes, I don't know who he's quoting here, Um, it's one of humanity's greatest mistakes, a desperate effort of bewildered creatures to come to terms with surrounding mystery. It it doesn't sound like the language of, uh, of, say, Freud, um, or... uh, um, or like uh, Nietzsche, or something like that, but uh, but but it might be. I don't know. Um, right? The idea is that uh, um, when you, you know, you're you're praying, but you're praying to nobody. You're praying to nothing. There may be a God, but if you um, if if God is um, uh, uh, perfect, unchanging, all powerful, uh, all of those things, um, which an agnostic says uh, might say is, is possible. Right? But if God is all those things, um, then, uh, then then prayer is a, is is a totally pointless exercise um, because you're not going to change God's mind. Um, you're not going to convince God to do what God is already not doing, um, uh, right? And uh, and if there is no God, then what's the point of prayer? Right, so on both sides, it's a it's a, it's a failed enterprise. Right, if there is no God, then then why are you you know asking God for rain? Um, it's silly. Right, thus, prayer is a fraud. To the worshiping man, we must say, "Fool, why do you in vain beseech with childish prayers things which no day ever did bring, will bring, or could bring?" Right. And I think that there is a sense, and a lot of people um, uh, get this, and a lot of people leave uh, um, uh, the religious life because of this. Right? They're they're um, uh, they're told that prayer works, right? and by prayer working, what what they're taught that means is that if you um, you know if 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 you uh, if you pray hard enough, if you are good enough, and you pray, um, then God will give you what you're asking for. And if God isn't giving you what you're asking for, it means one of a few things. It means either I'm not praying hard enough, I'm doing something that's making me not worthy enough, um, or God isn't listening, doesn't care, uh, or isn't there. Right? Um, and I'm sure that many of us have felt in some time, at some point in our life uh, the experience of unanswered prayer. Right, and and so from a philosophical point of view, for the reasons I just mentioned, the the, the idea of unanswered prayer is uh, is problematic. Right? Why keep praying if your prayers are unanswered? Uh, since it is dangerous fraud, the synagogue must be abolished. A vast number of people have indeed eliminated prayer from their lives. They made an end to that illusion. Right, so the 
appropriate response, right? Is is if prayer is is uh, silly, if prayer is childish, if prayer is foolish, if it doesn't work, then don't bother, right? Shut down the synagogue doors. Don't go to synagogue, which will you know in the aggregate turns into shutting down the syn- closing the synagogue doors, right? The rabbi needs a job. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But uh, uh, my uh, uh, my ability to feed my family, notwithstanding, if what I'm doing is fraudulent, right? Then I shouldn't have a job, right? Um, uh, so uh, you know, just like uh, just, what's that? I could drive a cab. You don't want me to drive a cab, actually. I'm not very good, but I could. I'm sure that there are other things that I, I actually have no other marketable skills. But um, but I'm sure that other rabbis have other things that they can do. Um, it used to be the case that rabbi was a side gig that rabbis did, and they were you know wood choppers and carpenters and things. There's a very famous uh, uh, rabbi carpenter. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, if, you don't, if you don't know who I'm talking about, then. Paul okay. Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. Akiva, what was Akiva? He was, he was, he wasn't even, he was a shepherd. He wasn't even a rabbi until he was in his 40s. Um, he was a shepherd, I think, yeah. Um, lots of shepherds. Yeah. Uh, a good rabbi or a good shepherd? Good shepherd. Yeah. Um, Moses was a shepherd until he was okay. So anyway, all right. So uh, um, the, my point in that is that uh, I will ha- I would have to learn another trade. Um, uh, but but it's the same thing, right? You know, if if a doctor is not actually healing you, right, he should probably lose his license, right? Now there are obviously like kinds of uh, illnesses and things like that, that 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 there's not really a cure for, right? There's maybe there may be it may be treatable and certain you can deal with the symptoms and whatever. Right? But if a doctor is claiming, you know, um, uh, what I do will will cure your cancer, right? And it doesn't, um, you probably won't go to that doctor anymore. Right? And if uh, and if the synagogue is making a claim that if you come here and you pray to God and you pray hard enough or you are you do the synagogue stuff, you're involved enough, right? So you're a good Jew and then you come and pray God will give you what you ask for, right? That's the premise. That it may not be explicit. The, the rabbis and the bima may, may never say it, um, but if you really pushed people, um, I would bet you that their theology of prayer is probably somewhere in that range, right? That if you pray hard enough, you'll get what you ask for. If you are good enough, God will listen to you, right? And by good enough uh, is usually defined as you know how involved are you in the synagogue? Um, how much how much do you give to charity? Um, uh, you know, uh, do you keep a kosher home? Right? Uh, we we've defined uh, um, uh, our terms in in that way, right? And so if all of that is the case, right? If if that's what prayer is, and that's what prayer is supposed to do, and prayer doesn't do it, um, then then why bother, right? There are some people who believe, and this is, I think, where he uh, brings in Kaplan here, uh, Mordechai Kaplan, uh, the, the great uh, founder of Reconstructionism, um, who makes the following argument. He doesn't believe in a supernatural God. He believes in a God that is uh, um, a, a force in the universe, a force in the cosmos, um, uh, or he doesn't believe in a personal God, um, a God that, that listens, right? Um, a force can't listen. Um, a power can't listen. A power can't answer. Um, a power can help propel, right? Uh, so uh, you could do that, but uh, but that's that's Kaplan's God. Um, uh, and uh, there are some people who believe that the only way to revitalize the synagogue is to minimize the importance of prayer and to convert the synagogue into a social center, right? To make it uh, a shul, but with a school and a pool, 
right? Um, and to minimize to the extent possible the shul, because what people really want is the school and the pool. Um, what's interesting is that uh, uh, Kaplan may have been right in the um, in in the mid twentieth century, um, but uh, but uh, what was different about the world for Jews then and the Jewish world is that uh, Jews um, were much more tribal, um, uh, both internally and because of external forces than they are today. We, we have a lot more open society today with Jews. Um, uh, uh, involved in in sort of every uh, element of society, so the notion of a shul with a school and a pool is actually um, not as relevant or meaningful to Jews today as it was in the mid twentieth century. We can join the pool anywhere. We can join the gym anywhere. We don't need to do it uh, at a shul, um, and we can send our kids to school anywhere. Right? Um, our kids can go to. Uh, uh, Baldwin, right? Um, our kids can go to Shipley or Friends Central. Um, they, you know, we, we don't need to send them to the to the Shul School. Um, we don't need to send them to day school. They get the, you know, um, why why do they need to go to to Jewish school? Um, so what you're seeing now, we talked about this last week. Lou brought it up. Um, is I think a uh, a, a, a major shift um, in the approach of uh, of, of the Jewish world um, to, uh, to a Heschel model of Judaism uh, rather than a Kaplan model of Judaism, and the places that are, are stuck in the Kaplan model are probably going to um, um, lose substantial ground. Um, but this is what Kaplan said, right? We should minimize the importance of prayer and convert the synagogue into a social center. Let us face the situation. This is the law of life. Just as man cannot live without a soul, religion cannot survive without God. Now that's a very interesting uh, notion because there are lots of Jews out there, I would, sus- I, I would, I would suspect, um, that, um, uh, that are not necessarily going to the Jewish social centers. Right? Uh, they're not going to shul because it has a school and a pool, but they're also not necessarily going to go to shul because God is at the shul. Right? So you go and ask a lot of Jews, you know, um, uh, what does Judaism mean to you? What, is, what does being Jewish mean to you? My guess is that for a lot of them, um, God doesn't factor into the equation. Tzedakah and Tikkun Olam are the answers you'll hear. Right. Uh, a lot, at a least. Lot. Um, and you'll hear, you'll hear the Holocaust a lot. Not, not as much as you did. And you might hear Israel a lot. Right, you're describing the Federation buildings. I'm not naming names. I'm just no, but I, no. <laughs> um, no, not necessarily the buildings, um, and, and not even necessarily Federation Jews. Although I think that they that, that a lot of people who who consider themselves you know Federation Jews but not Shul Jews might fall into that category. Um, you know. Um, APAC Jews who are not shul Jews, right? Uh, um, uh, ADL Jews who are not shul Jews would you know fall into that category. Um, but also people who are like you know totally not affiliated with any Jewish institutions uh, um, uh, might fall into that. I mean, you know, I, I talk to people. I'm very, very, very proud of being Jewish, um, uh, and being Jewish is in in, in various ways. Uh, they claim that it's a, a meaningful part of their lives, even though they their actions don't always um, reflect that. Um, but even but but for those people, right? For a lot of them. Um, uh, if you ask, do you believe in God, they might say yes. Um, the statistics show that a substantial percentage of them will, will say yes. Um, but is God a central part of your Jewishness? They would probably say no. Right? Um, uh, so Heschel's making a pretty radical claim here. Just as man cannot live without a soul, 
religion cannot survive without God. Um, although I will argue uh, that uh, that there is uh, even a major shift in, in thinking about this now. Um, Rabbi Eric Yaffe, who uh, um, uh, was uh, uh, is the immediate past, uh, I think CEO was his title, was president or CEO. President of uh, the Union of Reform Judaism just wrote a, um, a really interesting um, article. Uh, I want to say it was in Haaretz or the Forward, um, in in which he argued that uh, um, um, that that he doesn't um, that he doesn't get secular Jews. Um, that uh, that um, that that God is and has to be a central feature of Jewish life, and secular Jews who claim that it isn't are actually deluding themselves, because just about everything that they claim to be a part of their Judaism um, in a previous generation was formed by and informed by a belief in God, right? Um, you know, so um, so it's an interesting uh, um, uh, uh, claim, especially coming from uh, um, a leader of the Reform Movement. Um, again, reflecting, I think, a, a shift to Heschel uh, in the Jewish world. Um, Religion cannot survive without God. Our soul withers without prayer. So that's that's an an additional claim that Heschel is is making. He's saying our personal soul and our communal soul withers without prayer. That prayer isn't about convincing God. Prayer is about us. Prayer is about what we need. We don't pray to get things. Prayer is the thing that, that we do. Prayer is what helps our souls stay alive. Um, a synagogue in which men and women, he would probably say if you were writing today, a synagogue in which men no longer aspire to prayer is not a compromise, but a defeat. It's a pretty radical statement, right? That that uh, that that, uh, that that many synagogues, you know, let's cut down the services, or let's uh, add, you know add a more English, let's minimize the role of services in our big congregational picture. Um, that's that's a that's a compromise to make sure that we're accommodating um, uh, the needs, the diverse needs of all of our uh, of all of our members, right? And he says that's not a compromise, that's a defeat, a perversion, not a concession. To pray with kavanah, inner devotion, may be difficult. Right? To have actually spirit, meaning, substance, passion in your prayer is a really challenging thing. We've been spending the better part of uh, uh, um, almost a year now talking about uh, the, uh, the, the, the importance of, uh, of, of those features of prayer. Um, so to pray with kavanah may be difficult. To pray without it is ludicrous. There is no such thing as prayer in Heschel's view if there's no spirit in the prayer, um, and right. So there's an there's an equation here. Right? There's um, there's no such thing as synagogue without prayer. There's no such thing as prayer without spirit. Right. Therefore, there's no such thing as synagogue without spirit. Um, your thoughts. You said before that your perception is that. American Judaism is gravitating towards the Heschel view? I think that, so I think two things. I think that um, talked about this after the class, sorry, last week. um, That um, I'm not sure what's the chicken and what's the egg. Okay, but uh, but there are two things I think happening. Within the leadership of the Jewish community, especially in the conservative movement, um, a 
like the generation of my teachers um, were at the seminary when both Heschel and Kaplan were there. And, 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 and the generation before them too, right? Um, especially Kaplan. Um, and for the most part, most people may have taken a class with Heschel, may have read his books, may have been interested by some of his ideas, but they were really students of Kaplan. Right? Kaplan was a better teacher by all accounts. He was very invested in the lives of his students. He was also very smart, and I think he captured the, um, the, the zeitgeist of the time in which he was living in a, in a really significant way. So um, there was, I think, a, a generation of, uh, of rabbis, conservative, reconstructionist, and even reform, that were very influenced by, by Kaplan, right? And Kaplan uh, um, changed the, the, the landscape of American Judaism. Um, after both Kaplan and Heschel died, um, uh, uh, people didn't have uh, Kaplan as a teacher to touch on anymore. Um, so, um, so all they were going on was uh, the, the 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 legacy of their work, right? Um, and uh, and I and I think that the that uh, that what I see in my generation of rabbis and probably the generation before me um, as well is a, an appreciation of Kaplan's. Um, erudition and intelligence, um, and his um, deep understanding of what was useful and necessary for Judaism in the time that he was living, um, but a, uh, a a relic of a time uh, in in Jewish life that uh, um, that that doesn't reflect the reality on the ground, um, doesn't re- reflect the, the the needs of people or our own um, sense uh, or our own theology. Um, so I think that there is a uh, um, a, a, a marked shift um, toward a, uh, a um, um, at least in, in the Jewish religious leadership uh, toward a more theistic um, um, theology um, whereas uh, um, uh, Kaplan was uh, much more pantheistic um, so I think there's a shift and, 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 I, and, and I think that, uh, that part of that is uh, um, the um, the uh, influence of the '60s counterculture um, and uh, and the um, which which um, uh, which re, which re, which was resurgent, I think, in the '90s um, uh, in the wake of uh, you know uh, that's when like globalization, when people were, like really started waking up to globalization, and there was a um, among people in my generation a um, maybe not a. Uh, uh, an overt rebellion to the homogene- homogeneity of globalization, but there was a subtle rebellion of, of that, right? So, so I, um, you ever seen the show Portlandia? Port- okay, so Portlandia is a, uh, a sketch comedy show on some, you know, cable channel. It's got a couple of people that, that are Saturday Night Live uh, people. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, a, it's basically a sketch comedy show making fun of hipsters. Right, um, uh, living in Portland, right, and the idea is like you know, Portland is the dream of the '90s, right? And, you know, so you go to a restaurant and you like make sure that you're that that not only you know uh, do you know where your chicken was raised and what it was fed, but that it had a name, right, and that it had a personality. And you could go right, um, right, as a, as opposed to my parents' generation that like would you know wanted to go to the grocery store and get the package of uh, chicken that was covered in cellophane that you know was under the bright lights. Um, uh, there's a there's a shift away from that sort of uh, um, homogeneity, and you see that even you know in um, 
um, you know, major major corporations try to make you know individual stores reflective of the like local communities in which they're uh, in which they're present, and the big box stores aren't as successful nowadays. Um, so, so you. you there's a lot of that going on, and I think that uh, um, uh, that's in the um, that's in the water that uh, that that that, uh, that I think the generation before me and, and my generation of of, uh, of of religious leaders are 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 are, are drinking that water. Um, and the, why I don't know it's a chicken and egg thing is uh, um, I think that the uh, that the reality on the ground um, is that uh, and and you could see this I think by the uh, the rise of the independent minion movement. Um, uh, you know, you had it starting in the '60s with the Chavura movement, um, but a, a sense that uh, that that uh, people. Uh, um, um, People were having difficulty finding spiritual fulfillment in um, in institutional synagogue life, um, and um, and so institutional synagogue life was still working, quote unquote, for a lot of people um, in the sense that they retain their membership, although they don't show up. Um, but uh, um, but you know you can um, uh, the, the 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 both the large numbers of unaffiliated people. Um, now, in that demographic of unaffiliated people, there are lots of people who, you know, even if synagogue was more spiritually dynamic and uh, and and religiously overt, they still wouldn't go. But within that group, you also, I think, have a good number of people that, if synagogues were more religiously dynamic and spiritually vibrant, they would go. And then you have people who are looking actively looked spiritual spiritual seekers, let's call them. Um, uh, who were forming independent minions and uh, um, and and social justice minions and uh, um, and uh, you know um, uh, something I read a statistic something like um, uh, something like uh, um, sixty five or seventy percent of of Jews practice yoga um, right uh, and it's not only for exercise right there's a sense of uh, of uh, I mean some just do it for exercise but there's a sense of um, of of uh, of, of spiritual connectedness in, in yoga or meditation, um, right? So Jews are going to yoga studios, meditation studios, in part because um, they feel like that's where uh, that's a place that can speak to their soul, right? The synagogue is where you go to send kids to religious school that you didn't want to go to in the first place, and to give them a bar mitzvah that that uh, that, that you didn't really want to have, and you're not really sure why you're giving it to them, but they should have it too. And uh, and uh, you know, on the high holidays, to you know, punish yourself for a year of uh, being evil by sitting through hours and hours of a boring service. But that's the point of a synagogue. Um, for uh, uh, if I want spirituality, I'll go to yoga. Um, so I think that that's happening, um, and so that's why I think that there's a shift in the religious leadership to, to Heschel because there's a recognition that that's happening. I don't know. My, when I raised the question, I my, I mean, I, you just look at what's going on on the ground. We look at USY, which never had Kaplan societies; it always had Heschel societies. Right, right. I mean, we did, but that's who's training the best and the brightest <clears throat> in many respects. Is that's how you, people come up, but. Also, on a practical level, we're not building JCCs. We're not building conservative synagogues called Jewish centers anymore. If anything, they're closing. Um, So, you know, on a very basic level, has the model succeeded? You know, and even in the Reconstructionist world, where it's great, you know, from their own theology, you don't have very many large, you don't even have that many small Reconstructionist congregations. 
So well, I can kind of attest to the fact of, I guess, being the last generation to actually see both of them in work. Um, what I really think happened is that both of their contrary viewpoints filtered down to all of us in ways that we didn't understand at the time or, or see. But I think most <laughs> conservative rabbis, and not that they necessarily reflect, you know, the masses. Um, in fact, I'd say that, deal. They, they don't. <laughs> clearly, they don't. Um, but if you just talk about the conservative rabbinate, I think most of us were trained with both ideas simultaneously, and kind of ended up realizing that because, just like the tefillin, we got a head and a heart, you know, and. The head said, the intellectual side of us said, Kaplan is 100% right. His theology makes sense. The old voodoo supernatural stuff is kind of silly. Uh, he didn't say it that way, but uh, that was the implication of it. And yet, the heart found more meaning in, in Heschel's approach. So it wasn't an either-or. I think that was, that was the, uh, the incredible contribution of having both in one institution. Yeah, if I can, I think that's a really great way of putting it. Because um, I've, I've actually struggled with that tension in my head because, you know, between the head and the heart. Although I think that, uh, um, you know, there's an argument to be made that in a battle between head and heart, heart almost always wins. Um, and there's a, uh, you know, there's a reason that uh, the Hasidic masters say, that, you know, the reason we put on our, uh, our, our arm to fill in first, um, which is, corresponds to our heart, um, is, because, uh, is because the heart takes priority. And if your heart's not in it, um, then your then then your head will never be able to catch up. Um, so and I I think about the USY thing. You know I was I think I was prejudiced to Heschel. You know because of USY. Right? You know like because because I, uh, I I knew about Heschel before I knew about Kaplan. Um, I wasn't you know uh, 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 um, that Jewishly literate when I was in in high school to 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 know you know all those thinkers. And I knew about Heschel because of the Heschel Honor Society. Um, and, uh, um, but when they created the Heschel Society, it wasn't to have U.S. wires get into his theological stuff. It was because he knew Martin Luther King, because right. he was marching for civil rights. Right. It, was, it was the Tikkun Olam social action side of it. Um, although it's interesting that, uh, um, it, it, well, at least when I was in USY, um, there was a like social action group called the 613 Mitzvah Corps or something like that, right? And then there was the religious thing, which was the Heschel Honor Society. Like, you know, when I was International Religion Education Vice President, I oversaw Heschel Honor Society, and the Social Action Vice President oversaw the 613 Mitzvah Corps. Um, but uh, but all I, I don't know if it was I don't I actually don't know the history of uh, of how U USY um, uh, started the Heschel Honor Society. But what but what what I think like reflecting back on it. What it what it cued to me was that like USY Judaism was Heschel Judaism, and if I love Judaism because of USY, that means I love Judaism because of Heschel, right? Um, so I think that there is something you know subliminal about at least that the, there was for me something subliminal sure. about it. Sure. You know what's interesting is that in his personal practices, Kaplan was very traditional. Mm -hmm. yeah. you know, he he wrote a great game yeah. on some level, but he was you know a very orthopraxist. I mean, Cap Kosher didn't write on Shabbos, you know, David every morning. Yeah. Um, you know, all of the things that some of the Reconstructionists began to, you know, stray away from, he, um, you know, continued to follow. Well, he also didn't want to create a fourth denomination. Right. right. He was trying to hold on as long as he could. Right. It was his uh, followers who said you have to. 
and you know, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I, I you know, I, 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 I've never. That's not true. Never mind. Um, um, we won't uh, hold you to. I, 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 it's. I'm not sure. I'm not sure why. We've got to be careful because this is going to be in cyberspace. But I'm not sure why. Why um, reconstructionism um, can't fit into the tent of conservative Judaism? It feels to me um, like. Uh, um, um, uh, the, 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 the theology is, uh, is, is totally within the spectrum of, uh, of what you know, many conservative rabbis and conservative thinkers who, who self-identify as conservative maintain as being part of that umbrella. Why do you say it can't? It, on so many levels it has. It has, yeah. What, reconstruction? What do you mean? I thought you said that you don't understand why reconstructionism can't fit can't fit within the tent of conservative Judaism. Well, because it's an independent movement. That, like, in the, 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 the drive to keep it as an independent movement is what I mean. Yeah. Well, yeah, but, well yeah. it's a movement. So, I mean, there's a, you know, movements self-sustain, their yeah. jobs, etc. But there are a variety of Reconstructionist rabbis who are working in conservative synagogues that, that's and, true. and vice versa. That's true. You know, if you, would, if you took stock for whatever it means, some people would say, I mean, I'm... I'm a member of Beth Am. There's some people who very much identify with the Reconstructionist movement. Mm-hmm. Others do not. But, you know, on Shabbos, nobody says, you know, the Reconstructionists will be sitting on the right-hand side. You know, <laughs> They'll probably no be on the left-hand side. No pizza. Well, but if you go to Germantown, there is a pizza. <laughs> and, and, oh, with respect to those types of... That's right. right. There's, that's that's right. right. There's, there's not literally, but figuratively, because you have separate services. That's they right. don't come together. Do they still have Dorsche Derech? Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, and, and, and uh, um, I, you know, like, two years ago, Mew, uh, uh, sort of last but I, I, you know, I have not uh, only on one occasion been accused, accused in a, in a very, you know, a negative way of being a Reconstructionist. Um, and, uh, um, you know, and, uh, but on the other hand, um, to, you know, to be fair, uh, there are people, lots of people who make the argument that, that, that all the liberal denominations should be, you know, folded under one umbrella and we, you know, we should, we should have one, you know, one big, uh, liberal Judaism movement that sort of bleeds the distinctions and, you know, taking into, uh, consideration the fact that, that, that there are, you know, reform rabbis in the rabbinical assembly and conservative rabbis in the CCAR and, um, you know, so, uh, I think that, it may not have been a fair enough statement for me to make. There's maybe uh, real uh, uh, important uh, pluralistic reasons to, uh, to to keep independent movement. I was just going to say, growing up, I remember there were a number of women who went to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College because they were not accepted. Right. Right. And that was a huge, I mean, just being ahead of the curve that way, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know whether it brought us together or separated us further. I think the Reconstructionist movement made its break what why they can't join with um, in uh, accepting um, you know uh, patern- um, patrilineal patrilineal yeah <laughs> I, I mean because that then when once you have patrilineal which also in reform but they have they've interpreted somewhat differently and more confusing. But when they first broke away, there's no question that the primary focus was the speed with which change was perceived to occur <coughs> at, the, at the seminary. Mm-hmm. And it was, by design, meant to be a gradual, slow process. 
and uh, you know the argument was if the change is is appropriate, it will happen, but don't rush it. And so the folks that surrounded Kaplan kind of felt, if it's right, it's right. Make the change now. What are you waiting for? <coughs> and that was really, I think, one of the primary reasons why eventually they kept saying, if you stay within the tent of conservative Judaism, you're never going to get, you'll never make your mark. And I think ultimately that was among the, uh, the major factors, like, like the women's rabbis issue. I mean, they, they could jump on the bandwagon because they felt less bound by the halakhic principles than at what that time was conservative Judaism. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an interesting uh, uh, element of the discussion, um, the, the extent to which, um, you know, having a spectrum of approaches to Judaism um, helps um, it helps each other, you know, helps inform what every other uh, part of that spectrum is doing, right? So um, the fact that uh, that there was um, substantial uh, push based on a sense of moral imperative in the reform and, and reconstructionist movements to um, to ordain women and become more egalitarian, and then and ultimately uh, uh, to do the same with uh, um, with gays and lesbians, um, did you know? Did, did that you know sort of push the ball help help push the ball forward in the uh, movements to the right, right, in the conservative movement, and probably eventually in the in in the orthodox world as well as well. You know, although it's still going to be very slow, but I think that uh, at some point down the line, both of those things will change in, in orthodoxy. But there, there are also you know arguments from the other side saying um, that if the conservative movement didn't ordain women and uh, started ordaining women in 1985, I think it was when we when we started that the that that orthodoxy would have uh, uh, been ordaining women by now. And the reason that they're not is because um, of a, of a sense that like you know we need to uh, you know um, uh, vociferously oppose. Right, hold the line and oppose what the what the conservative movement is doing. So it's a um, an interesting you know debate about um, uh, about you know the extent to which uh, um, uh, the various movements um, help push each other along and the extent to which um, they um, they they help erect barriers um, or you know uh, uh, fences and boundaries. Um, okay, we're gonna have to stop here, but uh, I really appreciate the conversation. It's really wonderful. We'll see you next week. Reason.